Hey, Big Biology listeners, breaking news, we're looking for volunteers now to help us transcribe our episodes. The transcriptions make the podcast much more accessible for all of our fans and more useful for educators as well. If you're interested, send us an email at info at bigbiology.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Also, students and early career researchers, have you recently published an exciting paper? Tell us about it. For this season's Student Spotlight, we want to celebrate biologists by featuring their research here. To participate in this event, please email us. Send us a link to the paper, a two to three sentence summary of the paper, a headshot and any relevant media, your social media handles, and a 30-second voice memo explaining the findings. Send all of that to info at bigbiology.org. You can find out more about the project by checking the post pinned to the top of our Twitter profile. And now here's the show. The imperial family in Japan claims to descend from the longest hereditary monarchy in history. And they may be right. Solid historical evidence suggests that the first emperor in the family line ruled during the 6th century CE. That lineage has continued unbroken for more than 1,400 years to the current emperor, Naruhito. Impressive. Each animal also has a kind of hereditary monarchy within its own body. That monarch is called the germline, a kind of cellular royalty whose lineage stretches back into deep time, millions if not billions of years. The germline is special because germ cells give rise to sperm and eggs, the cells that actually reproduce. Given its importance, the germline in most animals is set aside early in development. For example, in birds and mammals, this set aside happens when the first few hundred cells of the embryo start to form what will become the digestive tract of the adult. This keeps them somewhat protected from acquiring new mutations, which reduces the risk of transmitting bad mutations to offspring, but also slows the appearance of novel gene variants. Okay, but what about the rest of the cells, those that aren't the germline? The rest of the body cells become what is collectively known as the soma. The blood cells, the fat cells, the bone cells, the skin cells, the brain cells, literally everything else. And their job is to ensure that the royal germ cells get passed on. You'll notice that somatic cells get a seriously bum deal. In organisms that separate germline and soma, which includes most animals, somatic cells do all the work of keeping an organism alive, but they have no chance of reproducing themselves. Their career path is essentially a dead end. So there are two mysteries here. One is a why question. Why do some cells give up their chances to reproduce just to help other cells? One likely answer is that most of the cells in an animal's body are clones of one another, or at least very similar copies. And this means that their interests are closely aligned. What's good for the germline is also good for the soma, and this can make it worth it to the soma to give up reproductive rights. The other mystery is a how question. How do cells in a developing embryo decide which will become germline and which will become soma? Developmental biologists now know that there are two broad ways that cells make this decision. In some organisms, the early embryonic cells decide among themselves, a kind of cellular discussion involving signals sent back and forth. In other organisms, the mom effectively decides, placing a special cocktail of chemicals into one part of the batch of cells that will ultimately become germ cells. The cells that by chance find themselves in that area acquire royal status. For you King Arthur fans out there, mom is basically the lady of the lake, giving out intracellular Excaliburs to a few lucky bystanders. Our guest today is Cassandra Extivore, a developmental biologist at Harvard who studies, among many things, the why and the how of germline specification. Recently, her lab has been investigating a gene called Oscar 
that plays many different roles in animals, among them specifying the formation of germ cells. Oscar is remarkable in that it alone seems to be necessary and sufficient for causing germline differentiation. Oscar acts as a kind of a magnet, and certain aspects of its biochemical properties help us understand why it, in some ways, is kind of sticky, like a magnet. And it it collects or aggregates, sticks together, lots of other molecules, which are the other molecules of the germplasm. And Oscar also has an amazing origin story. Cassandra and her group have discovered that this molecule is built from two pieces of DNA, one that comes from eukaryotes and another that seems to be most closely related to bacterial DNA. Scientists have inferred Oscar originated by a process of horizontal gene transfer, a topic we covered in detail in our episode with David Quammen on his book, The Tangled Tree. On this episode of Big Biology, we talk with Cassandra about germlines, how the germline is specified, and the roles and crazy evolutionary origin of Oscar in this process. She also offers advice to students about how to be successful in science. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. You are listening to Big Biology. We have a number of uh, sort of big topics we want to cover with you today based on some of your recent papers um, from 2020. And and maybe let's just, just for the listener, first of all, kind of specify what we mean by germline specification and germplasm as opposed to the, the rest of the insect. So it's just a kind of, you know, little reproductive o- overview of the development of insects. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, you know, we can even just step back one sec further and say, let's just think about animals and how we reproduce. And most animals reproduce not by a piece of our body falling off and then that becomes a new organism. Although some animals do that. But most animals make a special type of cell, an egg or a sperm, and then it has to fuse with one of those from the other sex or some other flavor of the animal. And uh, then this fusion makes the beginning of a new organism. So it's going to become the embryo. So the cells that have to make these special reproductive cells, the cells that make eggs and sperm, those cells are called germ cells, just name we give them. Any other cell that doesn't make germ cells is called a somatic cell, just in general, cell of the body. So germ cells are important for reproduction for animals. And animals make sure that they have germ cells ready for when it's time to reproduce by, in the embryonic development process, making sure that some cells adopt that fate of becoming germ cells. So embryos aren't making eggs and sperm, but they are setting aside cells that in the future adult will make those eggs and sperm. That process is the process of germ cell specification. We also call it germ line specification. We just mean line like a line of cells, like a lineage of cells, like the royal line. That's what we mean. So how do you specify the germ line? How do you tell those cells they need to, in the future, make eggs and sperm? You give them that special information when they are still in the embryo, and the special information can come in one of two forms. One, they can get a poke from a neighbor that says, hey, I'm sending you a signal. This signal says, hold your horses, just sit tight, because in the future, we're going to need you to make eggs and sperm. So that's like an inductive signal. Other way is inside themselves, they can already be born with molecules in their cytoplasm that, t- that give them that information. So they don't need information from a neighbor. They're already born with it inside. That cytoplasmic information that says you need to be a germ cell, we call it germplasm, because it's the cytoplasm that makes the germ line. And that comes from their mom loading that into the, into the egg. And that comes from their mom, exactly. Their mom, when she was making the egg that would give rise to them, put inside the cytoplasm of that egg these special molecules. Mm-hmm. And then the cells that form from that 
embryo that inherit those molecules, they're going to become the germline in the future because they have that information. So, so there must be intense competition at some level for cells to try to become germ cells, right? Because that's the ultimate immortality. So how, how do they decide that in a, uh, you know, a politically reasonable fashion? Yeah, that is such a great question. So that is the question that got me into studying the germline in the first place. When I was a graduate student, I was trying to think of ways to test the hypothesis with a real experiment of that, that you've just suggested, which kind of intuitively makes sense to us, that there might be competition between cells to be able to join that germ lineage. And so what I did was working in fruit flies, because we can manipulate their genes really easily, I made embryos whose germ, whose potential future germ cells had different genomes. And I asked whether having different genomes gave them more or less chances, basically, of making it into the germline. If by changing their genomes didn't affect their chances, then that might mean that there's not really competition. If changing their genomes, giving them a slightly different genetic complement, gave them more or less chances to enter the germline, that might mean that cells were actually capable of competition. So this topic of germ cell competition within an organism, or even competition of cells within the same organism, is a really important topic. Cell competition in the soma has been extensively studied over the last several decades in many different animals, and we have quite a bit of information on how that happens and how that can happen. Um, cell competition in the germline is much less studied. We know almost nothing about how much that happens, what kind of an impact it has on the evolutionary process, what the genes might be that control whether or not this can happen. And in fact, I'm really excited because just this year in my lab, we're starting a set of experiments to try to come back to that question. Um, but certainly in the theoretical um, literature, it's a very big topic, germ cell competition. Hmm. Yeah. So in the in that literature is there or is there an extension of that literature that argues why uh, somatic differentiation ever started in the first place that assuming that there's some value of being in the germline which you wouldn't be investing your time if you didn't believe that there was why would any lineage sort of say well I'm going to go do this completely different thing and give up all future reproductive rights too right I mean yeah exactly right they're just going to walk away but are there ideas about how that could have come to be Right. Absolutely. There are absolutely tons of ideas by theorists and experimentalists out there in the literature. And so some of them can be summarized uh, in this way. The advent of multicellularity, stable multicellularity, like animals or trees, dogs, um, the stable multicellularity has evolved many times in eukaryotes, at least some by some counts, 10 times, 20 times, many different types of multicellular eukaryotes. Of course, we believe that ancestrally life on this planet was single-celled life and if you want to count up like the number of cells on the planet or the number of species or something you'll definitely the single cells will win absolutely there's the most of them but the multicellular organisms we're not doing too badly either we've evolved many times independently we're important we you know we spread around we we we, we make moves so the argument is that one of the key features that had to change or that did change in the evolution of cells to permit and support multicellularity is the division of labor among cells. Different cells within the multicellular organism all have different jobs, and all their jobs are important for the success of the whole. So a germline without a soma can't go anywhere. 
a set of sperm cells sitting there on the sidewalk. No, you need testes to hold them. You need tubes to make sure they get out there. You need a digestive system so that there's even nutrients in the system. You need all these complex different somatic jobs to support the germline feature. And some theorists have invoked the idea of kin selection that the cells of the soma within your body are related to your germ cells. Their genomes are either identical or practically identical. And they were all born from the same ancestral single cell, that fertilized egg. And so there may be an indirect fitness benefit then to the somatic cells in being soma and taking on their different functions to support the germline and to support the diversification and the success of the species by, you know, being wings so that you can fly mm -hmm. or being lungs so that you can breathe. So these are yeah. the sorts their of ideas that you'll find. Aligned. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. What, what about cheating? Are there, are there instances where somatic cells cheat and try to get back into the germline after having been excluded in some way? Such a great question. My understanding of what we know about this is that if you do certain genetic tricks, you can observe that somatic cells have the ability to do this under certain conditions. Whether they actually do this in real life is less clear. It's kind of like stem cells in vitro. You can magic up stem cells with certain factors and conditions and make them do all kinds of insane things, grow little organoids and stuff like that. Would they ever actually do this in the real context of a developing embryo? That's much less clear. So um, do somatic cells ever cheat and sneak into the germline, even if they, were, they should have been doing something else? Whether this happens in real life is, is unclear. What is clear is that somatic cells can cheat and get out of their original jobs and end up in a more successful line of business. And a very obvious example of this is cancer. Cells that enter a cancerous tumor, they have abandoned what they were supposed to be doing, and they're just making more of themselves literally at the expense of the rest of the organism. They'll hijack the vascular system, say, come give us some blood supply over here. The vascular system is just zombied into feeding this tumor. They're sucking nutrients, they're taking up space, and they are not doing what they're supposed, they have a job but they've abandoned that job in the name of proliferation. So that's an example of, of sort of cheating What's the what's the order over evolutionary time that that um, multicellularity started to accumulate function? So germline is is everything, right? If if you're not if you no germline, no ancestors, no offspring. But what was the first system and the subsequent systems added on as multicellularity began to evolve? What was the you know the the first innovation that led to the beginning of multicellularity? Or do we even have an answer to that question? Many have proposed an answer to this question, and the answer has often been suggested to be that the germline soma divide is the first division of labor you need to make if you want to retain stable multicellularity. And the proposition is that unless this germline soma divide is made very early in the establishment of the multicellular organism, and unless it's pretty pretty fixed, you can't just cross over into the germline anytime you feel like it, then there would be no incentive for the cells to stay together in a multicellular aggregate. So in some, some researchers have proposed that the germline is the solution to the problem of stable multicellularity being uh, an evolutionarily uh, sufficiently fit strategy to even survive. 
Some have proposed that um, each individual cell, if it can just be its own reproducer as a single cell, then there's no motivation to stay together unless you clearly prevent everybody from being reproductively active, thereby forcing some to have a special differentiation function to perform some new multicellular uh, feature. So the germline has been proposed as the solution to evolving stable multicellularity so many times. And it is the case that in either every or almost every known instance of extant stable multicellularity, there is some kind of germline soma distinction that's established early. And in cases of things like transient multicellularity, let's say some slime molds, that under certain environmental conditions, they're single cells doing their own thing. Under other environmental conditions, many formerly free-living individual cells of the slime mold species will come together and physically stick together and form an aggregate, develop, form a little fruiting body, make some spores. That is a multicellular form, but it's transient. And the cells that of that aggregate that came together that get to make the spores that time, their descendants, that's the sort of the germline, right, the spores, their descendants may not necessarily get to make the spores next time there's an aggregation. So there's not a stable germline soma distinction, and that is something that correlates with transient multicellularity. So perhaps uh, some have suggested this is the answer to this problem. Okay. So yeah, I think I was phrasing the question or maybe think about the phenomenon backwards. It's more that the differentiated germline is, you know, some extension, some opportunity that whereas before all of the functions resided in a single entity, and now it's been sort of shifted off into one type of thing. It's not as if defense was more important or resource delivery was more important or physical protection was more important. It's just that germline, that's one job, and then the SOMA does sort of some combination of everything else. Right, right. So tell us about um, Oscar. You you wrote or in a paper in Current Biology back in the ancient history of 2012. You wrote with a colleague um, Ben Ewan Campen that Oscar is the only gene in the animal kingdom necessary and sufficient for specifying functional germ cells. What does that mean? And why is its role so special? And maybe a little bit of the molecular detail about how it does how it does its job. Absolutely. So Oscar is this, in my opinion, extremely fascinating gene discovered first in Drosophila melanogaster, and essentially what they figured out was that Oscar acts as a kind of a magnet, and certain aspects of its biochemical properties help us understand why it, in some ways, is kind of sticky, like a magnet. And it, it collects or aggregates, sticks together, lots of other molecules, which are the other molecules of the germplasm. Because we had known that there were lots of genes that were required to be functional, to make germ cells, but only Oscar was the necessary and sufficient one that it by itself appeared uh, enough. But how did it do this? It was able to do this to be sufficient because it could aggregate together all the other molecules. None of the other molecules can stick everybody together, but Oscar is like the ringleader. It can bring everybody together. So that's what we've known about Oscar for, for a few decades now. So, so does that mean that the other components are elsewhere in the cytoplasm of the egg and they get concentrated into the germplasm? Or is there also some sort of like uh, local expression of, you know, genes that are necessary for forming uh, germ cells? Yes, such a great question. Some of them are kind of dispersed throughout the rest of the cytoplasm and they need Oscar to pull them to that posterior. 
Others of them do get carried to the posterior. And so they're more concentrated there, but they can't stay there effectively without Oscar there to hold them. Yeah, so Oscar's really needed to anchor that stuff at the, at the posterior. So how many different targets are we talking about Oscar pulling in? Because, I mean, the diversity of molecules, what in the world kind of characteristics does Oscar have to have such a disposition to get everybody together and keep them there? That's amazing. Ultimate party host. Yeah, Oscar's... Uh, He's the party host. Very right? charismatic. <laughs> yeah, very charismatic. Yeah, so who are Oscar's friends? Who listens to Oscar? Uh at least 10, 15 different molecules, RNAs and proteins. Um, two interesting things about these RNAs and proteins that are Oscar's friends. They're mostly RNA binding proteins. They're mostly involved in uh, binding RNAs, often mRNAs, messenger RNAs, and either preventing their translation into proteins or promoting their translation into proteins at appropriate times. Um, that's one interesting feature of Oscar's friends. And the other interesting feature is that unlike Oscar, basically all of Oscar's friends are highly conserved mm. in animal evolution. Every animal has all these genes in their genome, all these Oscar friend genes, but not Oscar. Oscar, we think, is only found in insects. So there's a, a super tough evolutionary thing here for me to grasp, and that's thinking about uh, let's, let's talk about the origins of the Oscar gene in just a minute. But um, this is something that you've been talking about occurring in Drosophila. And the distribution is such that we know it doesn't occur in some older insect groups, but it does occur in younger insect groups, the holometabolous insects, right? And then there's some evidence of like, uh, what, some Oscar and crickets uh, hemimetabolous group. It. For something this fundamental, it's just so hard to imagine a transition from not having Oscar and not specifying a germplasm this way to to actually doing it. It seems like an earthquake <laughs> in, in developmental yeah. biology. So, so how how does that happen? Right, that's a great question. So, I think maybe it's worth talking about two features um, of germ cells and of Oscar that might help explain this. So, first about germ cells. So. If some insects don't have Oscar, like this cricket, for example, the hemimetabolous insects. So, so crickets uh, do have it or they don't? They do have Oscar, but they don't have germplasm. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and Cassandra, can mm, I, before we go too far so, down this road, I'm a vertebrate person. I know the difference between hemi and, and the holo, but maybe not everyone. Do you want to distinguish those two? It's, it's helpful from the point of view of germ cells to think about insects in two main categories. The more recent group, we call them the holometabolous insects and they undergo complete metamorphosis. So we all know about uh, butterflies that make a chrysalis or beetles or flies that make a pupa. There's a maggot or a larva, and then you make a pupa and then something totally different from a larva comes out of that pupa. That's metamorphosis. So holometabolous insects do that. Then you have your hemimetabolous insects, which uh, have sort of fewer divergences, we think, from a last common insect ancestor. And they are not metamorphosing insects. They undergo what we call direct development. So what hatches out of that egg, instead of being a larva or a maggot, it's just like a physically tiny version of the adult. So a, a fly egg hatches into a maggot, but a cricket egg hatches into a tiny cricket that looks almost the same as a grown-up cricket, except it doesn't have wings and it's a lot smaller. So it turns out that how you make your germ cells, also in insects, 
mostly breaks down along these two lines. The hollow metabolist insects, many but not all, have germplasm, just like fruit flies. Um, and that seems to be the most common way of making your germ cells in the hollow metabolist insects. And its phylogenetic distribution within the hollow metabolist insects and its very widespread nature in the hollow metabolist insects makes us hypothesize that germplasm is the ancestral way of making germ cells for the hollow metabolist insects. Now, in the hemimetabolous insects, there are no documented, experimentally verified cases of germplasm used to make their germlines. And so we think that based on that feature and considering how germ cells are made in close relatives of insects, like crustaceans and stuff like that, our hypothesis is that germplasm, like Drosophila uses to make a germline, is an evolutionarily derived way of making a germline. And that the ancestral way of making germ cells for insects may have been this inductive mechanism that I mentioned earlier. They need to get a signal from a neighboring cell. And so for some time, we thought that uh, it was very reasonable hypothesis. If holometabolous insects have germplasm, great. And we know about Oscar being important to make that germplasm. And for a long time, we thought that only holometabolous insects had Oscar. So then it seemed to all just fit together really well because you evolve a new gene, Oscar. Oscar has the ability to act as this magnet bringing together the elements of the germplasm. And now the holometabolous insects have evolved a new mechanism to make their germline, which is to make germplasm. Because why, how can they do this? Well, they have a special gene that the other ones don't have. So that's why it was really surprising to us. Uh, in fact, I didn't believe my student, Ben Ewan Campen, when he told me, Cassandra, I think I found Oscar in a cricket. I said, did you? <laughs> uh, you know, they don't have germplasm. <laughs> just go check. He said, okay, I'm going to check. And he did a fantastic job and really provided convincing evidence that he had found a real Oscar gene in this cricket that we were exactly at the same time in the process of showing didn't have a functional germplasm and used an inductive signaling mechanism to specify their germ cells. So we said, well, what, what is this? What is Oscar doing in this cricket? if it's not making germ cells. And it turns out that what it's doing in the cricket is helping the nervous system develop properly, which is a whole other line of research that we then continued on the side. But I think, Art, if, if I understand your, what you're asking, you're saying, okay so, okay, so now we can't be relaxed in this idea that, well, to make germplasm, you just make this new germplasm magnet, and then that's how you make it. Because now we know that what acts as a germplasm magnet in holometabolous insects, A, exists, in insects that don't have germplasm, and B doesn't aggregate germplasm in those insects. So how do you make that change? So I'll suggest two things that we think about this, um, one of which we have some evidence for and the other of which we have no evidence for. So the no evidence part has to do with the localization of Oscar. So I mentioned that in Drosophila, the Oscar gene is expressed by the mom, the Oscar mRNA and protein are put into the egg and they're localized to the posterior. And since that's the place where Oscar is, well, that's the place where all of the germplasm components go. In the cricket egg, Oscar is expressed in that egg, but it's just everywhere. Just everywhere, a little bit everywhere. So one hypothesis that we have no experimental evidence for is that if in the evolution of the holometabolous insects, Oscar evolved a localization mechanism, maybe some feature of its sequence, maybe in the mRNA, maybe an interaction with some trafficking protein, 
that could cause its aggregation into a high enough concentration in one place in the egg, maybe that is what could have facilitated the evolution of germplasm, a localized germplasm, right? So experiments that we would love to do, uh, anybody listening who wants to come and do these experiments in my lab, please let me know. If this hypothesis is correct, then observations consistent with the hypothesis would be, for example, that the cricket Oscar protein is able to physically interact with the same germplasm molecules as in flies, but it just doesn't exist in cricket eggs at a high enough concentration to aggregate that germplasm. So we could test for the interaction of Oscar from crickets with these other germplasm molecules. We could see if we could engineer a cricket Oscar so that it could all get concentrated in one place or maybe like force a high concentration of cricket Oscar in one place in the cricket egg and see if that caused germplasm to form. So we don't know if that's the case, but that's, could, that's one hypothesis. And then another hypothesis that we've been investigating that we hope to submit a paper um, showing some evidence for is that there are biochemical properties of Oscar in the holometabolous insects that are different from the biochemical properties of Oscar in the hemimetabolous insects. So Leo Blondell, a very talented grad student who was the first author on that eLife paper you mentioned, also headed up a second study where he cloned almost, he, sorry, he identified the sequences of almost 400 Oscar orthologs from across almost all insect orders. And then we did some computational analyses of the predicted biochemical properties of Oscar proteins from the holometabolous insects and from the hemimetabolous insects. And we noticed a series of predicted differences in their biochemical properties that could explain the ability of holometabolous Oscars to make germplasm and the apparent inability, or they just don't do it, of the hemimetabolous Oscars that don't appear to make germplasm. And these are testable hypotheses that future biochemical experiments can follow up on. I, I want to just follow up for a second on this this idea of a transition from an inductive signaling approach to specifying germ cells to this this germplasm approach, and and just say again how how weird and impossible <laughs> that seems to make that that transition, right? And and Marty and I were chatting before we got on with you, and and I was saying, you know, it's weird in the same way that like it's impossible to imagine how some lineages switch from say an XY sex specification system to a ZW, right? Like, or protostomes versus deuterostomes. These are like these just major transitions that we all know about. And in retrospect, we're all comfortable with. And yet, if you try to think about individual lineages transitioning from one to the other, it seems impossible. So, so how how does this happen in insects? Like in the you know holometabolous insects, how do they make that switch at at just sort of a lineage level? Yeah, well, here's how I think about it. You know, we we know that everything in the evolutionary process, uh, you know, at the sort of population level, is gradual. There's not sort of one generation born with three heads, and now it's just everybody has three heads now. You know, some something gradual. So here's how I think about it. You have your hemimetabolous insects. They're using the ancestral mechanism of signaling. So they have all the germplasm components coded for in their genome, and they use transcriptional activation in the zygote to turn on these genes. So when the cells of the embryo receive the cells from the neighbors, say you need to get ready to be a germ cell in the future, say, okay, I'm going to transcriptionally activate these genes that I wasn't acting on before, and I'm going to accumulate their protein and mRNA products in my cytoplasm, just biding my time until it's sperm time or egg time. Now, 
to evolve germplasm, a putative germplasm nucleator like Oscar that might already have existed in the genome doing some other business, like operating in the nervous system like Oscar was. We think that Oscar in the nervous system, not only of crickets, but it turns out of a lot of other animals, has physical and genetic interactions with lots of genes, including lots of the same genes that it acts with in the germplasm in animals like Drosophila. So Oscar's already around. Oscar already knows how to talk to these friends that, like all genes, have lots of jobs. The germplasm genes aren't, don't only work in the germplasm. They have other jobs in other areas too. This is millennial genes. You don't get one <laughs> profession, you do this till you retire. You, sw you switch, change jobs. So Oscar's already there. Oscar already knows how to talk to these different friends. What it needs to have a role in the germline now is to A, be expressed in the germline, and to B, be localized at a high enough concentration in one corner. So if you can evolve a new expression domain and a majority of the genome is maternally expressed in many animals, it turns out, during oogenesis, basically you turn on like a good half of your genome at some point or other. So you got you maybe being expressed in the drumline wouldn't be that hard. You acquire a localization mechanism through affiliation with a trafficking protein. You get a localization signal, something like this. And now you've got a lineage of animals that has uh, a fully functioning inductive germ cell specification mechanism, but also the potential to take care of that specification decision earlier in development because it might have a little accumulation of germplasm. If the accumulation of germplasm generates germ cells that are functional, then the zygotic inductive mechanism becomes obsolete or redundant. Maybe eventually there's no selective pressure to keep it. It gets a little bit broken, but you don't bother to fix it. It's not really a big deal. I'm making a germline earlier anyway. Perhaps in this way, the germplasm-driven mechanism of making germ cells comes to be the mechanism because the inductive mechanism has fallen into disuse through mutation that's been permitted to accumulate. Well, that, that, that's brilliant. And, and I mean, basically, you know, what you're saying is that by understanding all the details of these interactions, it's possible to imagine these, these gradual transitions that an outsider right. like me just can't imagine, right? So Right, exactly. Yeah, you just made the, the strongest possible argument for integrative biology. <laughs> I mean, by looking at the mechanism, what seems, well, how in the world is that possible? Well, you just gave us the story. Right, that's it, that's it. That's really our motivation for looking at, you know, super detailed stuff like, well, which site is phosphorylated? Or what exactly does that sequence of the UTR do? Because it helps, we think of it as helping us to sort of include or exclude more or less plausible explanations for this evolutionary process. We're going to take a quick break to bring you a message from our sponsors. Support for this episode comes from Hopkins Marine Station of Stanford University. Founded in 1892, Hopkins Marine Station, located 90 miles south of Stanford's main campus on the Monterey Bay, is the oldest marine laboratory on America's west coast. Hopkins scientists work both locally and at field sites around the world, and their research addresses fundamental questions at every level of marine biology, from genes to ecosystems. For example, a team from Hopkins recently attached cameras to bluefin tuna to understand how they move through their environments. Another team is investigating how to restore tropical reefs using heat-resistant strains of coral. Find out more about research and educational opportunities, visit hopkinsmarinestation.stanford.edu. That's hopkinsmarinestation.stanford.edu. 
The Zoological Lighting Institute funds the sciences of light and life for the arts, for animal welfare, and for wildlife conservation. Recognizing that natural light is a central aspect of animal health and ecological function, the Zoological Lighting Institute promotes understanding by including scientific and artistic perspectives in conversations about light, so that proper and sustainable approaches to care and development can be taken by communities around the globe. ZLI understands that natural light is a key element of wildlife habitat. Artificial light at night and other modifications to the luminous environment, such as glass and asphalt, have radical implications for the physiology, sensory ecology, and integrative biology of animals and their role within ecosystems. ZLI promotes scientific research to improve understanding as to what artificial changes mean for animals and the human communities that depend on them. Find out how you might support ZLI's work at zli.org by participating in, sponsoring, or learning through its programs today. Um, I think we have to do the, uh, we've got another heavy lift here um, in the sense of the origin of this gene. And we've not even mentioned it yet. You alluded to it really briefly, but can you tell us about this? Because what's already bizarre and crazy complicated, it's even more crazy. So where did this gene come from? Alrighty. So for a really long time, you know, the Drosophila Oscar was the only Oscar in the world that we knew about right? Unlike a lot of other genes. And, you know, we're moving into the genomic era now. So Oscar's identification, late 80s, functional uh, characterization, early 90s, mid 90s, genomes start to hit the road. We start to get eukaryotic genomes. We start to get animal genomes. Does that have Oscar? No, no Oscar, no Oscar. Nobody has Oscar, right? Then we, we get 11 additional Drosophila genus genomes. They all have Oscar. Okay, great. We get a few mosquito genomes, early 2000s. They've got some Oscar. Okay, so we're finding a handful more Oscars, but we're in the early 2000s, and we literally only have five or six reported Oscar orthologs, and they're all from either flies or mosquitoes, which are essentially the same insect for all intents and purposes. So, and I spent a lot of my postdoctoral years doing a lot of unpublished PCRs trying to clone Oscar from any other arthropod I could. Never found anything, never, never, never. When you compared the sequences of the Oscar genes that were known, they really, they were hard to compare with each other. They were hard to align. Oscar appeared to evolve very fast. It wasn't a very, very highly conserved gene. It was conserved enough so you could sort of recognize that that was an Oscar ortholog, but it really, it seemed to just change a lot quickly from animal to animal, even within, you know, the same order of insects. So we just didn't know where Oscar came from, not only because we didn't have a lot of other examples, um, but we could, it didn't even look like any other gene. It wasn't like, oh, it's a transcription factor or, oh, it's a transmembrane domain protein or, oh, it's obviously a kinase, I see the active site. You looked at the primary amino acid sequence and it, it was pretty tough to guess. As we accumulated a few more sequences in the mid, late 2000s, we and others could observe that if you stopped trying to find amino acid identity and looked for amino acid similarity or biochemical property similarity, you could see two regions, an N-terminal region, a C-terminal region, that were more conserved. They were conserved in their physical chemical properties, not the amino acid identity. That's a fool's errand, we learned. So as we began to consider that aspect of the sequence, and, and as the field began to accumulate more and more, now high-throughput sequencing is uh, the name of the game, and so insect transcriptomes are accumulating, and insect genomes are accumulating. So now with our sort of expanded view of what Oscar should look like, which is more a biophysical property um, a series of, of, and two domains, two regions of Oscar that have these conserved biophysical properties and within which you can identify a handful of conserved amino acids to kind of anchor you. And with 
expanded groups of genomes and transcriptomes available. We were able to accumulate for this first uh, paper that you mentioned about 100 Oscar orthologs. Now from not only the cricket that we had completely by chance been able to discover in a transcriptome earlier, but from many, many other orders of insects, including hemimetabolous orders, not just the holometabolous orders. And what we began to suspect was something that had been mentioned sort of in passing by Jeremy Lynch and his colleagues when they discovered the Nasonia wasp orthologue of Oscar in 2011. They said, you know, these two regions of Oscar, the N-terminal domain that we call the lotus domain and the C-terminal domain that we now call the OSC domain, these two domains really don't look that much like domains from other animals. And we certainly can't find other uh, animal genes that have both of these domains in them. And I wonder, you know, speculated Jeremy and his colleagues, could they actually be the product of some kind of horizontal gene transfer? Could they come from different domains of life and maybe somehow been spliced together? So we wanted, we were also making this observation that if we tried to search by sequence similarity across the entire length of Oscar, we could search animal genomes, we could search plant genomes, we could search bacterial genomes, we wouldn't find anything. But if we broke it down into the two parts, the N-terminal and the C-terminal half, we just searched each half. And we said, N-terminal half, lotus domain, what do you look like? Well, I look like a lotus domain from a eukaryote. There's no real prokaryotic domain that really looks like a lotus domain. So I look like a eukaryotic domain. It's an ancient eukaryotic domain, single-celled eukaryotes have it. C-terminal uh, part, what do I look like? The OSC domain. I don't look like any eukaryotic domain you've ever seen. I look like a bacterial domain. In fact, specifically, I look pretty similar to a specific group of lipid interacting enzymes from bacteria called GDSL hydrolases. So if two parts of the same gene look like they come from different domains of life, eukaryotes, prokaryotes, then we kind of are forced to hypothesize this bizarre phenomenon potentially of horizontal transfer of genetic material where organisms can acquire DNA and pass that DNA on to their next generations, not through sexual reproduction, not through the normal vertical transmission of DNA that we normally think of, but by lateral or horizontal transmission, basically acquisition of DNA from another organism, which sounds like an alien movie <laughs> plot. And uh, which we used to think sounded too crazy to be real. But now we understand we must accept this is actually a very frequent occurrence between prokaryotes, between prokaryotes and eukaryotes, between eukaryotes. It happens as a field. We're getting better at noticing it, better at detecting it, and better at accumulating evidence. So having generated that hypothesis, we wanted to test it. And the most robust test is a phylogenetic analysis to see if the evolutionary relationships and putative origins of the different parts of the same gene really are the same or are they different? And we found that they were different. Our evidence supported the hypothesis that the lotus domain from Oscar is of eukaryotic origin and that the OSC domain of Oscar is of bacterial origin. And we looked to see if there were other signatures of difference between these two domains that would be consistent with different domain origins. For example, in a general sense, eukaryotes and prokaryotes don't use codons in the same way. For example, could we detect differences in codon use? Um, those results were a little ambiguous. By some tests, we could recover differences in codon use between the two parts of the protein. By other tests, we couldn't. We, so those results were inconclusive. We also understand that our hypothesis that a horizontal domain transfer event led to the creation of Oscar 
This hypothesis requires that that event take place before the evolutionary expansion of insects, which is at least 500 million years ago, which is much older than the horizontal gene transfer events that we have good techniques to study reliably. And so perhaps any signatures of differences between those two parts of the proteins may have been diluted out beyond our ability to, to, to detect today, perhaps. Just to be clear, you say that it has to predate the expansion of insects, and that's because you find evidence of Oscar across all of insects, including multiple hemimetabolous species, right? So the inference is it must have been present at the base of the insects. That is yeah. exactly right, okay. and that its presence in today's holometabolous and hemimetabolous insects is due to inheriting it from a last common ancestor of right. all of the living right. insects. Right. And I missed, is it in any other arthropods besides insects? It is not. Okay. So it's right there at the base. It is. Wow. We think so. So do you have a story about how it got there in the first place? We do have a story. And like so many things in evolution. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's hear it. <laughs> let's tell a story. Just so. Just so. It's a just so story. So uh, Rudyard Kipling didn't write this one, but <laughs> uh, maybe he would have appreciated it. So, okay. So if the hypothesis is that... This gene, which is found in insects, could be born by fusion of piece of a bacterial genome and piece of a eukaryotic genome. Then how could these two pieces of DNA even come into contact with each other? Well, we know that bacteria are all around us. We've all heard about the microbiome, perhaps, right? The, the ecology of bacteria living inside us. And we think of them as, you know, we know a lot about the ones that live inside our digestive systems, for example. So they're in there, you know, in our guts and so on. And all animals are full of bacteria living inside them. We also know that not only do bacteria sometimes live, you know, inside our bodies, inside the hollows and cavities that our organs are, but also sometimes literally inside our cells. So we call these endosymbionts. They're symbionts because they're symbiotic with us and they're endo because they're inside our very cells. So they're in the cytoplasm, just hanging out there with the mitochondria and everything. Okay. So, and it turns out that we know that Many, many living insects have bacterial endosymbionts inside their germ cells specifically. So we hypothesize that an ancestral insect endosymbiont could have contained that bit of bacterial genome, GDSL-like looking hydrolase domain, that could have, you know, stuff gets messy inside a cell. DNA fragments, the nuclear envelope is breaking down on a regular basis, there's mitosis happening. It's not inconceivable, we propose, that a piece of bacterial DNA from a bacterial endosymbiont in the germline of an insect ancestor could have gotten mixed in with that insect ancestral nuclear genome and led to the fusion event. And one thing that we think is consistent with that story is our observation that the OSC domain of the OSCAR gene, which is the part that we think is of bacterial origin, its closest phylogenetic relationships among living bacterial sequences are uh, a groups of bacteria whose living members include germline endosymbionts of insects. And so we, like all the just so stories, can never know if that is really what happened, but we think that from what we understand of the biology of bacteria and insects and germ cells, that it, it is reasonable. It could have happened. Right. It's plausible. Well, that's a good story. I mean, and I, I take your point. How, how are we going to know without a time machine? The piece, I, I'm going to echo Art here with a sort of the, uh, it's hard for me to believe perspective, um, not your story, but there are so many checks and balances to prevent such things from happening, right? I mean, 
And I think we haven't talked too much about it. You alluded to the other functions of Oscar, um, you know, the, the roles in the nervous system, which I'm not sure we're going to have too much time to go into today. But in this case, you have a gene that comes in and takes on a profound role in many, many species when the machinery has evolved to, you know, sort of reliably produce the same old, same old for eons. And yet, not only did you have it taking a role in, in the, the germplasm, but you already, you also had it start to get subsumed into other neural functions, so taking on a pleiotropic effect. That's nuts. Is this common? I mean, is this something <laughs> that you think happens all the time? Are we accumulating evidence that this is more common than we've given, you know, credibility in the past? Or what, what's your perspective on that? I do think so. I do think it is common. I think we appreciate pleiotropy as being essentially ubiquitous now in a way that we didn't, you know, even when I began graduate school, you know, 20 years ago or something. At that time, it, we definitely, at least in developmental genetics, we're still conceiving of genes as informing developmental processes in kind of linear, discrete ways. Well, this gene does this thing, and these genes do this organ. And with the advent of you know many more gene sequences, first of all, what the genomes sort of told us as developmental biologists is we were, I mean, scratching the surface is being generous. When we talk about the genes that we thought we knew control the developmental process, Barely a quarter of the genes in the Drosophila genome had ever been studied before in the decades of genetic screens that had been done once we realized from the sequence genome how many genes there actually were. Okay, so we've been, you know, working with a tiny fraction of the genes. So what's all that other stuff? So we don't even know, right? And then we also have discovered through, you know, higher and higher throughput screens and the advent of a sort of a systems biology view of functional genetics, that uh, genes act together in complex networks, and you pull on one of them, and it's going to drag a bunch of other friends with it. Um, and the concept of modularity, you know, genes working together in kind of concerted packs um, that have similar, you know, biochemical features that allow them to, you know, they're like a construction crew, you know, they all know how to work, okay, you do the drilling, they sort of, and they can hop from place to place. This helps us understand a little bit better how what at first appeared to be like a terrifying hairball of everybody is connected to everybody is actually a functioning set of discrete subnetworks that kind of move around and yet remain tethered to each other. So I do think that our understanding of how development is controlled by genes has changed and that we understand that pleiotropy and extensive network um, connections are the rule. Um, and it's really discovering what are the separable subnetworks that can be tugged on independently a little bit of the others is our task today. And I think of germplasm and the germplasm genes as one of those subnetworks. But as you say, the wild thing about this is that even though the so-called germline genes work together as a little group in all animal germ cells, as far as we can tell, in some animals, those animals that have evolved germplasm, they've kind of come under the spell of this master magnet. And in the case of insects, that wizard is Oscar. And in the case of zebrafish, looks like that wizard might be a gene called buckyball that looks, first of all, it's not Oscar's relative. It's nobody's relative, just like Oscar's nobody's relative. It's a novel vertebrate specific gene that has not great amino acid. Uh, uh, it has poor amino acid similarity at the primary sequence level, but not bad physical chemical conservation. 
It is predicted to be a necessary and sufficient nucleator of other germplasm molecules. Um, <clears throat> there are some genes in the C. elegans genome called the PEGL genes that may operate in a similar way to aggregate other germplasm molecules in nematodes, but it's not found outside of nematodes, and it's not Oscar's relative, and it's not Buckyball's relative. And so these nucleators, we believe, have evolved independently in a number of different lineages, and perhaps facilitated in these lineages the evolution of germplasm, which is basically just a different way of calling the construction crew to the job. That's how we think about it. Um, we, we do like to ask at the end, though, just a, just a one or two broad questions. So uh, what are you going to do next, and what's your vision for, you know, what, what are some of the big questions in Evo Devo that you're really excited about? Hmm. Hmm. I have really enjoyed um, some work that we've been trying to do in the last few years. Oscar is an example of this. Um, some sort of systems biology analysis of a developmental process and ovary development that we did recently. I've really enjoyed taking a step back from one gene in one animal and trying to see if we can sort of hover above the forest and see if there might be interesting patterns that will give us a different basis for which to choose a tree for study, right? You know, in a lot of detailed functional analysis, we're like, well, we've got this tree. This tree is right here. You can't argue. It's definitely existing. It's here in front of me. It's got these branches. How those branches work? We've got to figure it out. Okay, you can't argue with that. Gene's here. It's definitely here. It's definitely doing important stuff. We don't understand it. Absolutely. However, I know there's a lot of other genes out there. I know there's a lot of trees in this forest, but I can't see further than down my block. So do I really have a great basis for choosing this tree over a different tree? And I'm not saying that one tree is more important than another, but I like to remind ourselves why we are studying the things that we study. Cause sometimes we just do it <laughs> reflexly yeah. out of reflex, right? This gene is really conserved. This gene is really not conserved. Everyone has this gene. Nobody has this gene. We know so much about this gene. We know nothing about this gene. We pick these fairly arbitrary. And, you know, biology is so huge. Throwing darts is a perfectly great way to gather information. <laughs> um, but sometimes I like to say, okay, can we helicopter above this situation and see a couple of interesting patterns that might make us say, hey, let's zoom in on that tree uh, for a change. And so I really enjoyed that perspective. Um even though, you know, what got me into biology in the first place was actually very detailed functional biochemistry, like one domain at a time. That was what was very interesting to me as an undergraduate because the zoomed out perspective just seemed so hand wavy. It just seemed like a lot of just so storytelling to me from what I could tell as an undergraduate who admittedly did not always pay all the attention in class that I could have. But I wasn't super convinced by a lot of the explanations for why we considered certain things more likely than others in the evolutionary process. I just wasn't seeing the data. And again, I was an undergraduate student. The data may have been beyond my pay grade, but it's not now. And I still find it kind of arbitrary sometimes. <laughs> so I like to say, are there other ways that we can choose something that looks like an interesting pattern in this or that direction to investigate? Um, so in that general context, 
I would really love to take a couple of our, you know, zoomed out perspectives. And from doing this, for example, in Oscar, now we have a series of new trees, trees that nobody had looked at before, specific residues, specific biochemical properties that we predict for specific regions of the gene that may be different in different groups of insects that may correlate with the different roles of Oscar in these different insects. We now have specific reasons to perform very specific biochemical assays on different variants of Oscar to move Oscar around from genome to genome to see to what extent these pleiotropic, these apparently pleiotropic roles can be recapitulated to see to what extent these predicted subnetworks or conserved regulatory modules of genes in germplasm or in neurons really can be transplanted as a whole crew, really can be interchanged in their members between crews. Um, so I look forward to being able to do those sorts of work. Um, I look forward to being able to apply this kind of systems biology view to the behaviors of cells. We've began in recent years a number of quantitative microscopy analyses of early developing embryos where we try to uh, basically take a lot of pictures and do a lot of calculations on the movements that the cells are doing. And from their behaviors revealed by these, what end up being equations and matrices, predict what sorts of molecular mechanisms these cells might be using to do these movements that we observe they are doing. Um, so I look forward to seeing how those types of approaches um, pan out and if they give us some new insights that we might not have thought of before. Um, and honestly, you know, I remember when I sort of graduated my first cohort of graduate students um, thinking, now what? Now what's the next group going to do? And I thought, well, I, I don't know, but I want it to be something different than what we've done before. And so I've been really encouraging of members of my group to add, you know, they all have lots of great ideas and many of them are experts in techniques that are very different from mine. And so the previous five years of our work has been really different from the first five years. And I hope that the next five years will be absolutely different as well. Um, because I always learn the most when I go into a field that I haven't learned of before. And I know that that's going to be true for all of us, but I remain interested in the same things that got me into biology in the first place, which was the molecular basis of a germline soma distinction and the role of that distinction in the evolution of stable multicellularity. And so from my point of view, the more different lenses I can learn to think about that evolutionary event through, the more exciting. Yeah, that's funny how the things that we start early in our research careers stick with us. I, I think in some way I'm still doing my dissertation work in a different incarnation <laughs> than 20-some years ago. <laughs> yeah. So um, the last question is a super softball, uh, and take it in any direction you'd like. What else would you like to say? What, what have we not asked you? What have we not brought up that you want to make sure that you communicate? I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that I have enjoyed the most uh and that I would encourage all, especially younger scientists who are, you know, throwing themselves out there, um, is to, you know, a very basic thing that I'm sure you've all heard before, is to not be afraid to learn new things. When we become professional scientists, we uh, sort of get the accreditation by demonstrating our expertise in a pretty narrow field of expertise of some kind. And we... Uh, also quickly learn to identify ourselves as experts in something and to say that, that I'm a geneticist, I'm a taxonomist, I'm a lizard biologist, I'm a 
climate change. But so, and that's great. And it's important to understand the areas where we have a specific expertise, where we can offer that depth of knowledge and that depth of skill. And we also sometimes use that to prevent us from putting on different glasses to see our problems of interest because we think, well, those glasses are super specialized and I haven't got a PhD in that. And I am not in any way um, saying that there's no role for specialists or that you know anybody can do anything. I am saying that as a collaborator or a student or a PI, you can absolutely work with people who have different sets of expertise than you and get them to show you how to put on their glasses and combine your different lenses on the vision. And in my experience, I always learn more about my system when I do that than if I keep my glasses on. And that's the thing that I uh, find the most exciting, honestly, about my job is the, uh, op- the, uh, that I always constantly have the option to learn to think about something in a brand new way that I've never thought about it before. And I guess I would want to encourage all biologists to think about their science in that way, especially graduate students and postdocs, um, young trainees, because that's where you find the things that other people might not have thought about. That's where you find your special abilities to contribute. Your unique lenses will come from all of your unique sets of experiences uh, and questions. And uh, yeah. I think that's the only other thing that I would I would want to add. Good, yeah, that's very that's inspiring. Great. It's great, great advice. <laughs> yeah, I say thank, thanks so much for helping us put on Evo Devo glasses for this conversation. Uh, they're clearly no, they not our not. glasses, and you've been a great guide <laughs> Absolutely. to thinking about these these problems. So fantastic conversation. Oh, it's been fun. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. If you love the podcast, please make a recurring donation through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. And another way to help us, a free one, tell your friends about us over social media. Tag us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. The next episode of Big Biology will be a sponsored episode from Journal of Experimental Biology. We're talking with Christine Cooper about how small Australian birds survive extreme heat waves. The Probably the climate change issues are most seen in our alpine regions. So we do have alpine areas in Australia. Um, and so for species there with climate change, there's just nowhere for them to go. Um, so we're getting less snowfall, earlier snow melt, and things like mountain pygmy possums are in real trouble because they, they hibernate and they just you know, they come out of hibernation too early, so their food hasn't arrived, and so there's this big mismatch. Um, the other areas that are probably most susceptible are some of the highland rainforest areas in North Queensland because again they're sort of high altitude nowhere else to go um and so they're probably the two sort of ecosystems that are most at threat thank you to matt ploys for producing this episode big bio interns ajinkia dahake dana baxter jordan greer and ruth demery manage our social media accounts and help us produce the show and as always steve lay manages the website thanks to the college of public health at the university of south florida the college of humanities and sciences at the university of montana and the national science foundation for support music on the episode is from poddington bear